Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. While many national parks have been closed due to the coronavirus pandemic, that doesn't mean there hasn't been news for the traveler to cover across the national park system. Last week, we brought you a story about the Keneal Bay Resort at Virgin Islands National Park and the decade-long saga over whether Lawrence Rockefeller's wish that the property would be transferred to the National Park Service in September 2023 would be honored. We also talked with Rob Wallace, the Interior Department's Assistant Secretary for Fish and Wildlife and Parks, and David Vela, the Acting Director of the National Park Service, to get an idea of how national parks would reopen in the weeks ahead. And we provided a short glimpse of the big Cypress Swamp jetport that once was envisioned for a large swath of land that now is part of Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. We're encouraged when we find national park-related small businesses and contractors still at work and drawing paychecks during this massive era of joblessness and park shutdowns. One person is Steve Patricia. He's an independent artist and content specialist who provides illustrations and diagrams for waysides, exhibits, and murals at national parks, monuments, and historic sites all over the country. From depicting the Spanish stronghold at Castillo de San Marcos National Monument in St. Augustine, Florida, to Aztec Ruins National Monument in New Mexico, Patricia's work is part of a larger effort to connect visitors to the landscapes and the resources they see in front of them. From his home in Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania, he shares some insights with Lynn Riddick. After Lynn's interview, we visit with Carolyn Ward, the chief executive officer of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, to learn how her organization has been faring during the pandemic. And she has some good news for us. The Bluffs restaurant on the parkway is still scheduled to open this summer. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. You might not know his name, but if you've been to a national park, monument, or historic site, there's a good chance you've seen his work. Since 1984, Steve Patricia has been creating illustrations and diagrams for outdoor wayside displays, museum exhibits, and murals. Parkgoers spend an average of only 30 to 45 seconds on a wayside, so there's not much time to tell a story. Steve is part of a team that finds the best way to tell that story, creating an emotional and meaningful connection between visitor and landscape. Currently collaborating on a number of Park Service projects with the 106 Group in St. Paul, Minnesota, Steve says it's all about making history relevant and interesting. Hi, Steve. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. It's nice to hear you. (laughs) Well, since it's a challenge to talk about art in an audio podcast, I will direct listeners to snpatricia.com so they can look at some examples of your work. Great. Yes, it's mostly current. I will start by asking, how did you first get involved in creating art and illustrations for waysides and museum exhibits? And what was your first Park Service project? How did that come your way? Uh, Let's see. I've been uh, doing work for the National Park Service since 1984. And that first job was for publications for the CNO Canal Handbook. And uh, a friend of mine was meeting with uh, a project leader from Harper's Ferry, and he was sort of complaining that he couldn't find anybody to do an adequate uh, cutaway of a canal barge. And this friend of mine said, oh, well, you should contact Steve Patricia. 
And that's where it started. And that was the first job. And I was able to solve their problem and create the imagery. And uh, then I became sort of uh, a person to call from time to time. And that was before they really established a procurement protocol for setting up what are known as IDIQ contracts, which refers to indefinite quantity contracts. But then I got on that list and became an IDIQ provider for quote unquote art services. Tell me a little bit about your education and how it prepared you for the work you're doing today. Out of high school, I uh, went to school for archaeology, anthropology, actually. Found out very quickly that in those days, uh, that if you really wanted to practice anthropology, you had to teach at a higher level institution. And I really didn't see myself as a teacher, per se. Maybe I was sort of enamored by the uh, imagery given out by uh, National Geographic, you know, of people getting dusty and dirty in the field and, you know, creating all of this wonderful research. But anyway, while I was there, I took some sort of career counseling uh, tests. And long story short, I settled on architecture as the way to fill out most of my interests. So I went to CMU in Pittsburgh uh, for architecture. Is went that through the Carnegie Mellon? Yes, it is. Yeah, I went through the program there. It was actually a four and a half year program. Uh, but while I was there, I was taking crossover classes at the University of Pittsburgh in archaeology. When I graduated CMU, I went to work in Pittsburgh and actually became an architect, got licensed, et cetera did a lot of work in the city of Pittsburgh, but I was also going to school for a master's in archeology span at the University of Pittsburgh. It took me several years, but I uh, did that uh, program. I came out with a degree and that sort of gave me all of that background for doing the historic and uh, scientific related work, as well as architectural analysis, site site analysis, architectural design, et cetera. Did you have an aptitude for art at a young age? I did, actually. I enjoyed it a lot. I, I almost always wanted to represent what I was interested in. My dad was a graphic artist, and uh, he worked for Oneida Limited Silversmiths as a, uh, uh, as a graphic artist and designer. And everybody in my family and friends said, oh, you're going to be an artist just like your dad. And not that I had any, any problems at all with my dad or his work. He was so supportive of everything I did. It's just that I didn't want somebody telling me what I was going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, so I said, no, 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 I'm going to be an archaeologist or oceanographer or paleontologist or geologist or whatever. And uh, so. You know, I was looking for labels that sort of fit all my interests. But what I found out in later years, that no matter what I was interested in, the common thread through it all was how to represent it, how to tell the stories. Because I have the background of architect, illustrator, anthropologist, historian, that I can fit in all of these worlds. And I can speak the language of the experts, or at least understand the language and try to translate their stories into imagery that can reach a number of people, people that aren't necessarily well-versed in any particular subject, but want to learn more. Steve, what makes a good wayside? There, uh, there are a number of guidelines, I think, that um, people look for. A wayside, by its nature, is a very limited set of information. Basically, you have this interpretive panel in front of a resource, and a resource can be anything. It can be a building. It can be a site where something happened. It can be a natural environment, uh, such as you want to use the large stuff like the Grand Canyon. And um, you're trying to convey some information about its history or natural uh, environment or anything anything that the resource is tied to. And you want people to get it quickly because they don't have a lot of time to absorb 
a lot of information, especially something that sits out in a site that you could be hot and sweaty and you have bugs flying around your head and you want to be engaged with it very quickly. And some say you've got 15 seconds. I, I don't know, it varies, I suppose. But the way a wayside is designed to be successful is that it has a title that is engaging that you, people look at and say, oh, I wonder what this means. Very little text that describes something and an image or several images that are like people want to stop and look at. And it can be photography. And in a lot of cases, Waysides have expanded to include audio content as well as tactile uh, exhibits. What we need then is for people who aren't necessarily versed to let's say, wow, that's interesting. Or the worst case scenario is to say, why should I care? If they say, why should I care? Then you've lost your audience. And um, then funding uh, starts to dwindle away. People aren't going to come and visit because they say, I'm not learning anything here. What are some of the waysides you've done and the illustrations and diagrams that you've contributed? Wow. The list is pretty long, actually. Some of the more interesting sites for me have been um, 96, South Carolina. That's a um, Revolutionary War site in the South. Allegheny Portage Railroad, which is close to where I live. That was, I've done museum exhibits and publication exhibits there. I haven't actually done any waysides there, but that was, to me, it was a rather important site. Arlington House in DC. That's where the Robert E. Lee home was. Um, Aztec ruins in New Mexico. Uh, Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Fort Pulaski in Savannah, Georgia. Fort Foote, which is a Civil War site, part of the Civil War defenses of Washington. Oh gosh, uh, Roger Williams site in uh, Providence, Rhode Island the William Howard Taft site in Cleveland, Pipestone in Minnesota. I think that's Minnesota. <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe site in um, Philadelphia, Fort Laramie, Fort Union, New Mexico, St. Croix. Those are, those are the highlights. <laughs> there are others. That's a pretty impressive list. The simplicity of Waysides really does belie the exhaustive work that goes into their development. In fact, the Park Service has a Wayside guide that I found, and that gives an overview of best practices, graphic standards, and workflow in the development of Waysides. And I should mention it's 84 pages long. So in a nutshell, can you tell me how these projects get started and who's involved in the collaboration? Good question. Um, it varies depending on um, where the park is, uh, whether they have partnerships with uh, private uh, organizations or state or county organizations. Sometimes funding can come you know, directly to the site by donors, by organizations that support these sites, in which case interpretive plans usually become they happen fast in some of these cases. Most of the stuff that I've worked with has gone through a longer process where a site-wide interpretive plan is hired through, again, through Harper's Ferry Center and the IDIQ contract system. And uh, I don't know where the money's come for that necessarily. Federal funding happens in an odd way, as everybody knows. But once that interpretive plan is in place, then the park will try to commission contractors to actually execute that plan. And um, what'll happen then is that plan and the request for waysides, for instance, will go out to the market. And through the IDIQ process, there are several contractors that can bid on it. They all have different expertise, but they can all bid on it. And then if you win that contract, usually what it involves is a site visit. And it should involve a site visit because the writer, the graphic designer, the interpretive planner, and the illustrator 
should all be part of the team that visit with the park. And any of the uh, projects that I've been on that have that kind of composition have been pretty fairly successful. What happens is that it is a team effort. And even once the um, interpretive plan is in place and you have the site visit where you go and talk to the park and visit all of these different resources, sometimes the stories change. But that's okay because at least you have a starting point. And um, the most successful contractors have been those who are a little bit flexible and can sort of go around the uh, what has been established on paper and talk to the park and get the better story. And we've changed a lot of the mission statements of some of these waysides as we go, but it always turns out to be better, I think. The idea of this collaborative effort is really important. And that's why I really value my uh, connection to the people in St. Paul, the 106 group, because they have a lot of talent there and we work together extremely well. And there are more people involved with producing a wayside than just an artist or a photographer or you know what other imagery you require for this. They're very talented writers and graphic designers who do a lot of this work. Before you put pen to paper, you probably have to do a lot of research in addition to what's outlined in the interpretive plan. What's your approach to that? Well, of course, again, it starts at the park. The park personnel, the staff there, the interpretive rangers, they know this history so intimately. I mean, they can tell you stories that, you know, just are very full. And um, so as you walk around and talk to these people, we try to collect as much verbal data as we can and any hard copy that they might have on site or anything that's up on their internet sites. And then I usually try to develop a, a very early preliminary visualization based on what they're saying on site. Sometimes I can do it right there while we're talking. And, and that helps me a lot because as you put things down on paper, you start to see where all the gray areas are, things that you don't know. And so that brings up other questions that we bounce back to the park people and say, can you fill this in for us? So yeah, it's an ongoing process, a reiterative process of collecting data about synthesizing it some way, putting a visual together, and then it goes back around to assessment and see whether or not we got all the points in place. Are you the go-to guy on particular subjects? I see a lot of military battles in your portfolio and a lot of Native American art. Yeah, I've kind of uh, fallen into that, I think. It's been good for me. Uh, anything that's uh, building-related, architectural or site environments, whether it be compounds of buildings, uh, I seem to be the person who can handle it. Uh, again, it's years of being an architect and understanding Oh, understanding built environments, spatial relationships, things like that. As far as the military sites go, it's just, it's been that way for years that uh, on the historic sites, I got called in to do visuals of mostly uh, structures. And when I look at, look back some of the early ones like Fort Larned and uh, Fort Union, um, it was all dealing with the built environment mostly. What's your favorite subject matter? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I like dealing with some of these um, fortification sites. When I look at Fort Union or Fort Pulaski, it's interesting to me how these huge structures came about. But the Native American uh, subject matter has been very interesting to me because mostly my archaeological background has dealt with that. When I was... Uh, doing my undergraduate thesis at CMU, I did it on Mayan architecture. And I had um, advisors at the University of Pittsburgh who worked me through that. But then as I developed my own master's program for archeology, span I was dealing more with my local Northeastern US prehistory. So that, that sort of is, you know, it's just an inner core of the kind of things I'm interested in. What media do you use in your art? It's gone across the board to uh, the wet medias are, you know, often uh, often watercolor, 
or something akin to that. Uh, dry media such as pastel, charcoal, pencil, even ink line has been most successful for me, I believe. Do you have a favorite part of the whole process? Yes, I would say I really enjoy the site meetings and the site visitation because face it, I'm going to these sites that I I would love to visit anywhere, anyhow. And uh, I get a privileged view of some of these places that, you know, most people don't get a chance to collect all of this information. I have the personal interaction with, like I say, all these terrific experts in the field. It's a very privileged position. So that is the most uh, valuable to me. And in fact, I've done work where I do the site visit, I collect the basic visuals, and then the final product goes to another artist. I've done that. I did that with um, with San Antonio Missions, actually. I worked with Richard Schlecht, who is a very well-known artist and a, ter- a terrific person. And uh, he just became the artist of choice for some of the things that I was able to do preliminaries for. And believe me, that is not a problem with me. And then some projects I can visualize for, say, botanical studies. And, um, but I am not a botanical artist. There are people out there who are much better at it. I am going to describe an incredible piece of art you did for Devil's Tower National Monument in Wyoming. And I'm going to ask you about it. It's done with muted blues, pinks, purples, grays. It shows a crowd of folks gathered on the rocks and boulders in front of the massive tower. And when you look closer, you see that there are many types of people from different eras in time. You see Native Americans in ceremonial dress, vaqueros on horseback. You see early 20th century men in bowler hats and overcoats. You see a modern era park ranger and a few women in sneakers Um, One's even holding a water bottle. There's another person seated on a rolling walker. Could you please explain your thought process in creating this piece and what your goal was here? Well, um, these these are, I don't believe these are installed yet. So uh, people listening wouldn't be able to see this yet. But Devil's Tower is an interesting site because there are, as I understand it, 26 native tribal groups that share authority at the site. And also it is a National Park Service site. So the National Park Service is a curator of sorts. They provide the interpretation, the education, the visitor center, law enforcement. Uh, so they are guardians of the site. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a strange, mix of interests. The, um, the native people have understood that people have been visiting this site for, well, we have some archeological evidence, I believe that goes back 10,000 years. Eh, you, could, you could question that perhaps, but we, we know that people have occupied this site for a long time. So people have been coming here for that length of time, probably having different agendas perhaps, because the native sense of spirituality is different than maybe what a modern tourist, a white tourist, for instance, coming to the site will feel for it. But everybody is in awe of it. You can't help it. When you stand there at the base of this, it's overwhelming. So what um, the title of this, at least the working title for this wayside was all of our ancestors before us. Now that's not just native people, it's everybody. So what I wanted to show here was that it's a hypothetical landscape. This is not a snapshot in time. And it's not proposing that people should just, you know, scramble up all over the place. The park service tries to control it a little bit. Although people are allowed to climb the monument at certain times of the year. People have been on top of it. They're That's part of the story that we tell. But what I wanted to show here is that no matter who you are, when you come to the site, it has the same effect on you. That it's just a spectacular piece of geology. And uh, we wanted to show that 
it has people have respected it for a long time. I guess that's the summary of it, the short summary. Now I'm looking at another piece of your art from the Jefferson Expansion Memorial in St. Louis depicting a slave auction. Here there are men and women in neck and wrist shackles being unloaded from a buckboard wagon. There's a slave auction taking place on the courthouse stairs, and there are seemingly indifferent folks in their Sunday finery and top hats strolling by without as much as a sideways glance. Tell me about this piece and the artistic choices you made. Well, this was interesting for a lot of reasons because this actually represents a a known slave auction at the courthouse steps. And when it's an auction like this, it's basically a foreclosure on property. So uh, the the sheriff is the one overseeing this whole thing. And... um, It's about liquidating property, very simple. And slaves were property. And um, the reason I set this up in this fashion was that I'm trying to be sympathetic to the plight of these people. And that's why the guy in the wagon, the woman being hauled away in front, the woman who's standing on a box on the steps. You know, to me, this is like, this is one of the horrors of, of human history. But... The people that are walking, as you say, nonchalantly on the street, that's the way they would have felt about it. It's like, oh, well, another plantation goes down. You know, it's just like they, they wouldn't have looked twice unless they had a personal interest in what was going on at the auction. And uh, so I wanted to show all of that in the same scene. I'm not trying to say I understand what it was like to be a slave at auction but I can sort of project a little bit, you know, seeing your family being separated and things like that. And then the rest of the people in the city are just like, oh, well, yeah, happens every day. How big are your drawings typically? Good question. They vary depending on how much detail has to go into it. 18 by 24 is kind of common. If it's a vignetted piece, like a, a small piece description or something, it can be eight and a half by 11 or something of that size. What happens to your drawings once the wayside is completed? Good question. In the (laughs) earlier days, before the digital revolution, uh, which I remember, I I had to actually turn in final art. And then they went in storage at Harper's Ferry because I was a contractor through Harper's Ferry Center. So there are flat files, I think, with hundreds of my pieces in there until we got to, you know, doing things digitally. And then what I do is I provide the digital files. I have a couple of high-end scanners here that can give very high-resolution product. And um, I turn those over. Actually, because now I'm a subcontractor to a larger contractor, I send those to the prime contractor and they do what they have to do to overlay text and, um, you know, maybe do some fade outs, uh, things like that. However, I work with them as the process goes along so that we don't have conflicts with text overlying certain important parts of the image. So I do have to craft the image so that it matches our layout. When you have a number of projects going on at once, like now, and you sit down to work, which project do you reach for first, not counting the one with the closest deadline? Well, that's a good question. It varies every day, I think. I have a lot of um, responsibilities here on our farm. I call it a farm. It's 30 acres with a couple horses. It's enough of a farm, believe me. So that tempers when I get to work and how much time that I can spend on a particular project. Uh, But normally if I have free will to choose time on a startup or continuation on a project, I usually like to go for the hardest stuff first early in the day, because that's when I'm freshest, when I can, you know, really make decisions and move along on producing the actual artwork. Uh, sometimes, though, I find that if I'm forced to do very late night work, 
uh, if I can get past the eight o'clock point and not fall asleep or something like that mm -hmm. and start in, I can go uninterrupted for hours. And I've, I've had many nights where it's 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning before I actually walk away from it. You're currently working on large murals for the Wesleyan Chapel of the Women's Rights National Historical Park in Seneca, New York. That's the location of the first Women's Rights Convention in 1848. Tell me about that project. The chapel that this event happened in 1848 was, uh, through time, it had gone through a lot of changes. It had been gutted out. Uh, the Park Service only acquired it just a few years ago. I don't know the exact date of that. But they've stabilized the building. They've made it into an orientation center. So when you come and visit the site, you're brought into the room and a ranger will tell you the story. Well, there were several notables who attended this, not least of which was Frederick Douglass and Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And um, so that's part of the story is you want to depict these people who are running the, the symposium. So that is one large mural that sits in the front of where the podium would have been. And it's to recreate that scene of these people up there reading the Declaration of Sentiments. Then the larger part of this whole project are three sides of the room had a balcony as most chapels of the time did have. And that's where the crowd was mostly. There were people on the floor in pews, but since those are now occupied by visitors, you don't depict that. So this mural of the balcony has to be put in place up in the air at the place where the balcony was. And uh, the total yardage of this, it's like seven feet high, I believe, and probably running almost 120 feet long in three parts. So that's the challenge, is try to portray these people in such a way that it's not a, an actual photographic reconstruction of what this looked like. We can only go on who is likely to be there and what did they look like and, and how would they have interacted while these declaration of sentiments or the discussions were going on up front. How does it feel to contribute something that is viewed by so many people and helps their understanding of the bigger picture? Well, I think that's the, that's the goal of all of this. You know, it's the idea is to make history relevant, to open up people's eyes to what happened when. And in a lot of cases, there's a lot of continuity with modern life. And that's why I try to tell these stories in a human way because that's the only way to engage people. You know, it's just, I don't know how to put it. It's just like the kind of thing that you want people to understand that this is important, that it has significance for the way we conduct modern life. And that you want people to be thinking like, I wanna know more. And most of the work that I do is that introductory stuff. It's the kind of thing that you give them a little taste of it enough to spur their interest and hopefully, like in the sense of waysides for National Park Service sites, they'll go to the bookstore, they'll go to the visitor center and collect up more information and just look on the internet there themselves and try to find out more information. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I will be looking at waysides with a whole new appreciation now and I'll definitely be looking out for your signature, too. So best of luck to you. Yes, thank you very much. And I appreciate the time you spent. All right. Stay safe. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, 
Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. It's May. Wildflowers are blooming across some units of the National Park System. And while the spread of coronavirus continues, in some areas, the rates of infection are falling and parks are announcing plans to reopen. But the pandemic has been hard on National Park Service staff, concessionaires, and friends organizations that do so many wonderful and important things for the parks. Today, we're visiting with Carolyn Ward, the Chief Executive Officer of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, to learn how her organization has been coping. Welcome back to The Traveler, Carolyn. It's nice to be here, Kurt. So how are things in uh, eastern United States, the Blue Ridge Parkway? I, I noticed that uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park uh, announced that it's going to start opening up some of its trails May 9th, I believe. And um, any word on what's going on with the Blue Ridge Parkway? Well, the Blue Ridge Parkway is currently still under the phase one sort of shutdown that they initiated, much much of which was spurred by surrounding uh, restrictions, either from states, North Carolina or Virginia, or surrounding counties or other public lands um, that made particular decisions that then impacted the Blue Ridge Parkway. So for example, when the Smokies closed, the parkway closed the uh, end, the southern end of the parkway, where you would essentially dead end uh, since the Smokies was closed. And when Shenandoah National Park closed, they did the same thing up north. So the parkway is responding not just to safety and security of both staff and visitors, but also what the surrounding region is doing. Yeah, I've noticed um, comments on the traveler. There's a lot of frustration with people there don't seem to understand, you know, they, they say the parks are open and fresh air and it's easily to, to distance one another. But what seems to be getting lost is that there are gateway communities to these places. And if you're going to visit the Blue Ridge Parkway, you're going to stop in those communities to get gas or to get a meal or whatnot, or maybe find lodging. And those communities don't want to have the, the virus spread to them because they're not always equipped to handle a pandemic. Well, and, and also surrounding public lands. So, for example, uh, in the Asheville area or in the southern end of the parkway, when Pisgah National Forest announced a closure of trails and access to the public, that had significant impacts for the parkway and lots of things for them to consider. So, for example, if you were driving on the southern end of the parkway and you stopped at the parking lot at Graveyard Fields, if you walked uh, a few feet uh, away from the parking lot down a trail, you were now in the Pisgah National Forest, which had deemed all of its trails in that area closed. Huh. And so it also became a very significant management issue to, to have a public be able to have access to a place, kind of, sort of, but not really. And so all of those things had a, had a real impact on what the parkway could allow to stay open. And of course, you've had to juggle things. I mean, normally um, uh, any other spring, there'd be activities and fundraisers and, uh, and events out uh, on the parkway. How have you managed to cope with things? Well, we're doing the same thing that everyone else in the world is doing right now. We're, we're trying to adjust expectations, keeping in mind that we do care first and first and foremost about the safety and security of our donors and our supporters. And having an event where you bring 500 people together, uh, as fabulous as that might be for everyone and for the park especially, it's not the safest thing to do right now. So we're making some modifications. We're doing a lot of things digitally. We're creating some virtual experiences. We're creating lots of information that we're putting out there for people to be able to still stay connected 
uh, although in an alternative way to the park and to the mission that we all hold so hold so dear. Yeah. Now, one big event, I think, on a lot of people's calendars was reopening of the, the Bluff Restaurant scheduled for later this summer, no? Yes, and uh, I am happy to say that the renovation and restoration work in the Bluffs uh, for the Bluffs Restaurant is continuing. We are, in fact, on schedule. Oh, that's the, great to hear. Uh, yeah, the construction uh, teams from Atriax and the others that are working on that project have come up with protocols to maintain safe distance and have masks. And so they have managed to be able, although a short shutdown, um, have managed to be able to stay working safely. And the renovation restoration work is proceeding on schedule and it just looks fabulous and it's so exciting. And we've been talking now about, okay, what what does opening look like? How do you do a modified uh, table uh, seating arrangement to allow people to be safe distance from each other. So sure. we're still hopeful that uh, given whatever the states and the national park decide to do, we are still hopeful that we will be able to open that restaurant this summer. Do you have a, a new date, a moving date, <laughs> a hope for a date? Well, we, we're targeting mid-June. We have not changed that date until we hear from uh, the governor and or the National Park Service about any restrictions. We are still hopeful for for mid-June to be able to have the restaurant up and running, albeit it may look a little different and and we may be sitting a little further apart from each other, but we still have a lot of hope that we'll be open. That's great to hear. Is it just um, breakfast and lunch? No, it'll be three, three meals a day. Good deal. I wish I wasn't so far away. It's a, it's a long drive from Utah. <laughs> I'll send you some fried chicken, Kurt. <laughs> Good deal. Good deal. And a milkshake to go with it. And, well, that might be a little harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about the concert series that we normally hear on the, the parkway? Well, we have moved for the Blue Ridge Music Center. We were slated to start, of course, concerts in May. We have now moved our start concert date to the end of June. And we are still in conversation with the park um, about whether or not we may have to push that a little further back. We are still hopeful. We're talking about policies and procedures for audience members and band members and volunteers, how we can keep people safe. Uh, We want people to return to the hillside at the Blue Ridge Music Center. We want to hear the music wafting across the ridges again, but we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that, that is safe. You know, we can't stay locked up forever, but when we do come out, we want to be sure that we're doing it in the most thoughtful way possible. So, again, we still have hopes that we will have a concert season this summer, although it will probably start much later than normal. Yeah, yeah. Now, your foundation has done so many wonderful things for the um, the Parkway, um, a lot of renovation work, not just at Bluffs, but uh, elsewhere. How has this impacted your fundraising efforts? I know um, a lot of organizations are are struggling in that regard, in some cases because they've had to close retail facilities inside parks. And just the fact that there's a a lot of people across America who are laid off and so may not have those extra dollars to donate. Has that impacted you yet or is it hard to say? Well, it's it's a little bit hard to say right this moment. We do, uh, of course, uh, are concerned about events that we have, uh, fundraising events, and whether or not those will be able to move forward. We do have a dedicated group of uh, community of stewards who love the Parkway and care deeply about it, uh, not just today, but for in the future for their kids and their grandkids. So we still have folks that are giving and donating some more than they did before because they recognize the impact to groups like ourselves and they know the mission is important. Uh, In perpetuity has a deep meaning, uh, especially now. Um, We we are uh, seeing some changes in how we're doing uh, our development and our fundraising efforts. I'm not sure right now is the time to go to members of the public and ask for money, perhaps from those that we've never asked for before, because there are so many needs. And we are certainly very well aware of that. Um, So we've delayed some of the fundraising efforts that we would normally have done, but we Mm -hmm. still are getting really nice reception from the people that love the Parkway. Um, The mission is, is forever. And so we're, we're here for the long haul. 
That's great to hear, Carolyn. It really is. We've been talking today with Carolyn Ward, the Chief Executive Officer of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, about life on the parkway and at the foundation during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me. Um, be sure to send me that opening date for the Bluff Restaurant. Um, you never know. Maybe I can head out there. <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful, Kurt. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks for all that you do at National Parks Traveler. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. This is Kurt Repencheck, founder and editor-in-chief of National Parks Traveler. We all have at least one thing in common, national parks. They offer us beauty, recreational opportunities, cultural history, and an opportunity to recharge our batteries. How you take advantage of the parks is up to you. Our job here at National Parks Traveler is to provide you with the information you need to pursue your desires in the national park system. The coronavirus pandemic forced us all to make detours. Many vacations were either postponed, canceled, or headed off in another direction than initially planned. At The Traveler, we expanded our regular coverage of the parks to examine how the pandemic was impacting the parks, those who work in them, and those who enjoy them. In the coming weeks and months, there likely will be more detours that take us away from our normal approach to enjoying and appreciating the parks. That's why we need your support this week during Giving Tuesday and its accompanying News for Good initiative designed to raise money for nonprofit media organizations. National Parks Traveler is a member of the Institute for Nonprofit News, an umbrella organization that represents more than 250 nonprofit news organizations that share one thing in common, bringing you editorially independent factual news about the beats they cover. We know of no other news organization that is devoted solely to daily coverage of national parks and protected areas. Now that's a pretty heavy lift when you appreciate the National Park Service's structure, the political influences that impact it, as well as the more than 400 units of the national park system. That lift became a bit more cumbersome with the coronavirus pandemic, as we worked to track which parks were open and which were closing, how businesses were being impacted, while also bringing you stories not revolving around the pandemic. In the past month, in addition to our coronavirus coverage, we've taken you to Everglades National Park, John Day Fossil Beds National Monument, We've scrutinized the issue with management of the Keneal Bay Resort in Virgin Islands National Park and looked at efforts to envision the 21st Century National Park campground. We also stayed on top of impacts of oil exploration in Big Cypress National Preserve and talked with the incoming superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park, as well as looked at some bison science at Yellowstone National Park, and so much more. We work daily to bring you news, perspective, wonderment, and thought-provoking coverage of the parks. If you're a regular parks traveler, the traveler is an essential resource in your daily life. We help you stay atop of management news affecting the parks, recreational news, and travel news. We also rely on you, too, and not just when it comes to donations. We've gotten more than a few tips and story leads from our readers, and while we can't tackle them all immediately, we slowly try to whittle away at them. When it comes to donations, our readers and listeners provide the largest share of our funding, money that fuels our editorial independence. We expect you'll continue reading Traveler in the weeks and months ahead to learn how the national park system will reopen 
and what will be expected of visitors to the parks. With that in mind, we're hoping we can count on you. This is a difficult time for the media. News outlets, literally by the hundreds, have fallen by the wayside in the past decade due to giants like Facebook and Google corralling the majority of online advertising dollars. Doug Lean, the force behind Ranger Doug Enterprises, the man who has spent the past 50 years tracking down original Works Progress Administration posters of the national parks to donate to the Interior Department, understands the value of the traveler. That's why he, along with traveler board members, will be offering matching grants this week. They believe in our mission and want Traveler to maintain its editorial voice for years to come. We hope you'll help us take their money by making a donation this week. Your support makes what we do possible. Let's do more together. Please, if you can, visit nationalparkstraveler.org this week and donate to our mission. Hopefully, we'll see you in the park soon. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As more and more national parks announce their reopening plans, we'll pass that information on to you via nationalparkstraveler.org. Hopefully, we'll see you all back in the park soon. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.